All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the pastor here at Christ Community Church. Uh, we're going to take just a moment to pray for one of the folks that we support through Faith Promise. And let me just say this about Faith Promise. I know those numbers look like, oh my gosh, are we not going to make it? It, it kind of goes this way every year. Um, you still have opportunity to get your pledges in this week and next. You have two options. There's a physical card that you can fill out, and there's some extras on the table right outside the doors um, that you can, you can fill out and drop in the offering plate or give to any one of us as leaders. There's also an online way to do it that you can just go. Uh, it is on our website on the front page. We do have a website. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. Uh, we're blazing ourselves into the 20th second century. And so uh, you can click on that and you, uh, you, can, you can pledge that way. And here's the other thing. If for some reason all the pledges don't come in, that doesn't mean we're going to cut anybody uh, from Faith Promise. We will continue to dole out the money as long as it's there. And if we've got to take seat cushions and dump out pennies and nickels and quarters, that's what we're going to try to do uh, in order to support those who have been called to do God's faithful work locally and around the world. So take heart, participate, continue to be generous. And again, we thank you for those of you who have pledged already. Uh, and so we were going to pray for the stocks who are in Southeast Asia, and they've been through an awful lot over the last year just in terms of uh, business visas and, and team members uh, that have had to step away. And so God continues to work and move in, in and through their little church because Christ continues to remain on the throne. So we're going to pray for them. We're also going to pray for Joel Smith and Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Uh, they are a, church, a sister church in our presbytery as they worship together this morning. Uh, and then I'll pray for our, our children as kindergarten through second grade will be dismissed. And then I'll pray for our time together. All right, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you stir within the hearts of your people a desire to see people come to Christ. That is your heart. Your longing is for every tongue, tribe, and nation to hear the gospel generation after generation. We give you thanks that the stocks were faithful to that call to Southeast Asia where they serve in a church that is uh, worshiping um, and, and loving and discipling and sacrificing and serving. And so we pray that you would continue to protect that work as only you can. Even if something changes uh, and, and members have to step away for a season, God, continue to keep your heart beating in that place, that the lost would be found, that fruit would be born from the things that they do in your name. We pray that you would continue to give them the support that they need. We give you thanks for what you have provided for this church so richly over the years and are currently providing for faith promise. We know that you are faithful to continue to do so. May we be your hands and feet and respond and be the means, the instruments, the vessels by which that provision comes in. God, we also pray for Joel Smith and Smyrna Presbyterian Church as they worship. Right now, they're worshiping. May your spirit be in their midst May they feel your presence. May they be um, built up by your word and worship. And we pray that, that fruit will be born in their sanctuary and beyond. We also pray for our children this morning. Thank you that you have entrusted so rich a set of talents to us. May we be faithful to invest and to, and to preach the gospel to them in a way that they can understand and hear. And may they see the dedication of people week in and week out. And that would speak to them of your continued pursuit of them and dedication to them to see them redeemed. Bear fruit in that ministry. And Lord, as we gather in here this morning to hear the conclusion of First Peter, I pray first and foremost that what we have heard so far we would not forget. That it would stick to our ribs, that it would change how we live and how we think that it would cause us to love our neighbor more than we did when we started and love you more than when we started. God, help us to be sober-minded so many times in this letter. You call for us to cultivate our minds in light of the gospel, that we be a people who walk in light of the resurrection even now as it has been purchased for us in Christ, looking forward with great hope to his return, allowing us to submit uh, to local governance, allowing us to uh, love our neighbors well, allowing us to love our families well, allowing us to be beacons of glory on your behalf, signaling to people that you love them and to come. And God, I pray that you would bear fruit in us this morning, 
that we would not go away unchanged. If, if there's hardness of heart in this room, may it be tendered and softened. If there is those who are lost, may they be found. If there are those who are weary, may they be encouraged. If there are those who are joyous in their salvation, may it be fanned further into flame this day. Be with us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Kindergarten through second grade is dismissed. If you would be turning in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 14, we'll conclude this letter this morning. Um, and there's a few things I want to make sure that we have uh, continued to bring along with us. And this is where you get to participate as much as one can in a Presbyterian church, I suppose. Uh, and so uh, you, you, you can push the limit a little bit even. Um, so what is the main indicative on which this letter is founded and really all of the gospel? Y'all got to get stronger than that on that one. That one you got to come clean on. The rest of them you can kind of like, I'm not real sure. But this one, in all seriousness, think about it. Think about it. If we can't declare in a room full of people who seem to be in relative agreement on the topic, if we can't give voice to this, then what hope do we have you're going to give voice to it out there? So now that you've been chastised and feel utterly horrible about yourselves, let's try this again. The main indicative that this letter is founded in all of the gospel is what? God's love for his people. And we can't forget that and we can't grow, we can't not be excited about that. We can't not at some level celebrate that fact that God loves us so much that he refused to leave us in darkness, that he refused to leave us to pay for what we have every right to pay for, which is our sin. It's not just that we have sinned in Adam, we have sinned in ourselves. We have picked up where Adam so purely left off. The just desert, the wages of sin for us is death, and yet God in his love has said, I will not let that be the final say for my children. In fact, what we're going to see in the second letter is that this, the fact that, that Christ has not returned uh, people in the world are saying that that is evidence that God is not loving, that he doesn't care. And Peter's going to rebuke that and say, no, actually that is evidence of God's great grace and patience and long-suffering. Essentially, it is Exodus 34, 6 and 7, writ large across history and spanning into eternity. And so we need to be able to, if nothing else, if there's no other answer that you can get right on any sort of biblical trivia, it ought always be that you know that God loves you and that God came for you in Christ and that he continues to pursue you in the Holy Spirit. And he continues to give you the means of grace so that you would never forget his love for you. So that you would never not have access to growing in the depths, the heights, the widths, which are, they can't be measured, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. So that's the, in, the indicative, and we've gotten a whole host of imperatives, haven't we? There's a lot of things that he's told us that we need to think about and do, but we could probably sum it up this way. Love your neighbor. All that he tells us to do, it rises out of his love for us so that we in his name, in his glory, reflecting him, would love our neighbor. And why? So that they would know the indicative of God's love. And so, love God, love neighbor is firmly at the heart of this letter. If you had to summarize, what is it that Peter wants us so desperately to know? It's those things. God has loved you so you can love your neighbor so they can know that he loves them. And here, what he's going to do as he concludes this letter is he's going to bring together again the indicatives and the imperatives and close out uh, in, in one last exhortation to call us yet again to cultivate our minds and our hearts something that we desperately need to do. And when we don't, when we don't cultivate ourselves, we leave ourselves open for destruction. And that's what you need to understand is that there is, there is nothing neutral in this world. Nothing. Nothing. If you look at it 
If you really kind of dig down into anything, you will recognize there are angles everywhere. Let me just ask you a quick question. Can somebody name to me a news source that is so concerned with the truth that they are not taking sides? HuffPo? No. Reuters? No. Fox? No. CNN? No. MSNBC? Nope. Nope. So just even our news, so you got to understand, and, and, and uh, I was a, uh, wanted to be a, a journalist at one time uh, in the vein of Woodward and Bernstein uh, because I loved the movie with Robert Redford and, uh, and that whole phenomenon. I thought, man, you can, you can change the world. You can put the power structures on their knees with the truth. Oh, how utopiatic a young man I was. And how I, I long that there would be that. But there is, there is no interest whatsoever in what the actual truth is. If anything, it's what we've seen, in, regardless, and I'm not going to go deep into this, the Kavanaugh hearings themselves have been just a circus of the will to power. If there were people who were genuinely concerned with the predatory nature of this man, why now? We're genuinely concerned with how women are being treated in this country, then why leveraged? If we're genuinely concerned with a justice who will rule in favor of the constituents that are under him, why necessarily him? And so, so what, we're, what we're seeing is we are so fractured, and we've been so since East of Eden. Don't think this is anything new. If you do, go read 1 Kings uh, out loud to your neighbors and see what they think. Uh, and, uh, and tell me how that goes for you. Uh, it's just more of the same, right? And so it's critical that we have a firm foundation, isn't it? Because there is no one interested in creating anything firm in this world, unless it's to control you. And that we need to understand. So let me open with this question. Um, and this one's, this one's a tough one because it, it can take you into some, maybe some difficult place and maybe you'll clip out for a second. And that's okay if you do, if you need to meditate on this. But have you ever questioned God's goodness and her power? Have you ever wondered, is God really good? Even if it's for a second. Now, there's some of you who are, that's an offense to even ask that. How do you... What right do you have to ask a question of the goodness of the Lord our God? He is holy. You watch your mouth, young man. And you know what? You're kind of right. You're kind of right. But he allows the prophets and the psalmists and everybody to do it, even Jesus himself. And, and so, and so if, if we're questioning because we long to understand it better, if we're questioning because we want to make sure that we've not lost sight of the narrative, that's different, isn't it? If we're questioning because we just want to be set free to do whatever we want, then that's, then that's not even really the question. Your motives give you away. If what you want to do is say, well, if God's not good, he's not powerful, then let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die because we are nigh the end of the world. Well, that's, that has nothing to do with the question. But if you're asking the question in the same vein as the psalmist, the prophets, it's because you know that it ought to be different than it is. The world ought to look different than it does. The church ought to be cleaner than she is. We ought to be more powerful than we are, not in the political sense, but in the servant sense. And you are in good company. And I would posit, I don't know, if you're paying attention to the world, your family, your neighborhood, your own home at all, I don't know how you would never question this. Because there are times when it seems like God let go, doesn't. He didn't, and he hasn't, and I trust that, I cling to that truth. But there are times when it seems as if everything has given way. And who will be all of your hope and stay? So listen to what Tom Schreiner says as we step into this, because this is important, that that, that question is, is undergirded. How we answer that question is both in the indicatives and the imperatives. Hear what he says. The God who has given us such promises, which is just another word for indicatives, 
also uses exhortations or imperatives to provoke his people to be faithful until the last day. The exhortations and promises, therefore, should not be played off against each other, as if the exhortations introduce an element of uncertainty to the promises. The exhortations are the very means by which God's promises are secured. And indeed, God in his grace grants believers the strength to carry out the exhortations. Let me pause for just a second. Some of you may have just heard when he says that the exhortations are the very means by which God's promises are secured, that that's works-based salvation. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is for you, as you live out in this world, you grow in your understanding of the depths of those promises. Those things become even more a firm foundation in your understanding not in reality. Does that make sense? So God's promises, his foundation is firm whether or not you understand its firmness or not. And you living out what he calls you to do is only going to help you grow in your understanding of how firm the foundation, how strong the promises. Unless your faith is ever tested, how do you know how faithful God can be? It's another way of saying that. He goes on to say, still such grace is never to be used to cancel out the need for responding to the exhortation. So what he's saying here is you, you can't say it's, it's such grace that I have no responsibility at all. As Rankin Wilborn says, God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. And so we are here because God has a mission for us. We've been invited into this work. That's what the, the exhortations are. It's God basically saying, Come work with me in these redemptive purposes. Love your neighbors as I have loved you. No greater work could we do. So as Peter's concluding this, he wants to make sure that he, in his last exhortation, makes very clear who we are to be. And so what we should get from this is that we are called to humble ourselves under the will of God as evidenced by our casting our anxieties upon him as we watch, pray, resist the devil, and stand firm in his grace. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, and this is the call to humble ourselves under the will of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The therefore is therefore because, if you remember, he quotes Proverbs 3.34, last, what we saw last week in verse 5. He says, God opposes the proud. And notice he had said for us to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another, which is the call to love your neighbor, right? Now he's pivoting and saying, love the Lord your God in the same way. Humble yourselves because God opposes the proud under his mighty hand. Now, what essentially Peter's telling us there is that God is good, that he loves his people, and he's powerful. Think about uh, some of the, when it comes to suffering, anybody ever read Rabbi Kushner's um, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? His conclusion is, is that God can't be all-powerful. That if people suffer, then, then there's no way God can be all-powerful. He doesn't think he's malevolent or bad. He just thinks he's impotent, ultimately. But yet, he continues to worship that God. But what Peter is saying to us here is, no, that's not true. Remember, he's talked to us much about how suffering is transformed in a cruciform way into a redemptive value in this world. It's amazing how much suffering speaks, right? We went to the men's extension this past week, and I just want to pause for a second and say there will be a horrible rumor that's going to circulate out of that, that I actually can preach for 15 minutes. It's just not true. It's not true. Don't believe a word you hear. 
Now back to the show. Uh, <laughs> but when we got in there, it was very interesting because they're looking at us and you can see, I, I've done this for too long, and you can see they don't have to stay for the, for the, um, uh, the time of sharing or the homily, if, if you will. And so they took, they, the food was incredible. Bonnie, was, it was unreal, right? I, I think they tried to hire her right on the spot, even though there was no position open. Uh, and so that, was, that part was amazing. And people did an amazing job of sitting with people and, and talking and hearing their stories. And, but, but they kind of took one look at me, the one who was going to be speaking, and they thought, nah, I ain't fixing to listen to this dude. Old Lily White, upper middle class, Cobbite. I'm like, okay. So I got up and a few hung out, right? Uh, and it was interesting because their, their rooms are all around. And so I, I started talking and uh, it was interesting because a, a few of them matriculated back in. Like, oh, well, wait, what? And it was interesting how it really resonated with them because, and this is what they came up to me and said, they said, you understand this uniquely. You understand what we're going through, and that's, that's really, we need to hear how all this fits together. Like, they, just like any of you who are parents with wayward children or any of you who are having marital struggles, you want to hear from people who've made it, don't you? You want to hear from people where God's goodness and faithfulness is on display. But in order for that to happen, what must happen first? You must suffer in order to have that story to tell. This is where God takes and gathers up all of those pieces and does something so glorious and so beautiful in a way that we can't even begin to comprehend. Now, I wouldn't choose to go through what I've been through in life. No way, no how you couldn't get me to do it. But I've been through what I've been through. And I have agreed, begrudgingly at times, to leverage it for his good and to tell the story uh, and, and to walk through it and to walk through it with those, those people who have similar stories. We all have something to share in this regard. It's the question of whether or not we use or, or praying how it might be leveraged for his glory. So when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, what we're already confessing is that God is good and he's powerful. He can protect, he can transform, right? But what are we humbling ourselves to? As I've said, a good father, but also his redemptive will. We understand that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of a gentle redeemer, a loving Abba Father, one who has the power to make new again. You're not submitting to a tyrant who doesn't love you or someone who doesn't understand you. He fashioned every ounce of your being. He knows exactly how you will struggle, and yet he brought you into the world anyway. He knows exactly how you will deny him, and yet he calls you forth from nothingness. Not so that you can continue in those things, but so that you can experience his love in the unique way in which he has fashioned you and your life. And even how he will redeem and transform your suffering. Amen? Amen? Amen. <laughs> I thought there was a few more sufferers out there than initially, initially kind of came across. Um, and so he goes on to say, even more gloriously, he, he's saying that it's, it's at the proper time he will exalt you. So not only are you submitting yourself to a good God who cares about things, but he's guaranteeing there's going to be a good, good end. Does any of this make sense if the ending is up for grabs or potentially bad? How many of you would be like, ah, let me, let me get my money back? as if there's some sort of, you know, department for that in heaven, right? If we didn't know there was going to be a good, good end, how in the world could we endure any of this, all of the uncertainty that we have, all of the things that hit us when they hit us, all of the things that we do that we know can't be trusted, much less you and our interaction. And so what he's saying here, Peter's saying, is you're submitting to a good God who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, to redeem you, and welcomes you into this glorious work for which the end guaranteed is beautiful and glorious and good, and you will be exalted at that time. And then he goes on. 
He says, now, how this will be displayed is that you will cast your anxiety upon him because you know he cares for you. And this is more than likely a quote from Psalm 55, 22. And, and so what Peter is saying is that the evident, the true evidence that you have submitted yourself, and think about this for a second, what is it that you have the tightest grip on in your life, if not your anxiety? What's the thing that you are scared most to turn over to the Lord, but the things you are most anxious about? Your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, you, your struggle, whatever it may be, the tightest grip, if you examined your life, is upon your own anxieties, your own weaknesses. It's the devil you know. It's the devil that you've become incredibly comfortable with, I've become incredibly comfortable with. And so there is no submitting to the Lord if there are things that we hold tight to iron-fistedly that we refuse to turn over. Now, that's a process, right? Sometimes it takes years to pry finger by finger by finger. And hopefully, for those of you who are parents, your kid's not 45 when that happens. Hopefully it happens a little sooner. For those of you as a spouse, hopefully you're not in your 80s by the time that happens, but if it does, it does. But it is a process, this turning over the casting of anxieties upon the Lord because we are so tight-fisted about those things. That's why Peter picks that. He could have said all kinds of stuff, but he chose anxieties. Now notice part of that's because they're going to suffer in a broken world. It's guaranteed they, as Christians, will meet with um, persecution of some kind, whether it's just something as simple as what, what many of us are beginning to experience, which is, you're a Christian? There's mental institutions and medicine for people like you. I had a lady one time tell me, you're, you're everything that's wrong with this country. I didn't vote for Trump even. I, you know, I, I, I kind of thought I wasn't that guy. But in her world, in her mind, the thing that I had challenged her on, and it really was something very simple. I just pointed out that a certain word happened to mean something that was emblazoned upon her shirt that actually meant something pretty awful. She was like, you're everything that's wrong with this country. I was like, wow, that's, I'm pretty powerful as it turns out. I need to work on this. How do I use this? <laughs> and so he's saying... Cast your anxieties because the Lord cares for you because if you try to live this out, it's going to hurt. You will suffer, but it doesn't have to be meaningless, and it doesn't have to destroy you. It doesn't because he cares for you. And then he tells them, you've got to be sober-minded. You've, you've got to do what I failed to do in Gethsemane. You've got to watch and pray. Here, Peter is speaking from the well of experience and failure. He failed to watch and pray. He failed to be sober-minded, and the devil was prowling about, seeking whom he might devour. And so Peter is saying, you've got to be sober-minded. That means you've got to be able to rightly understand the world. You've got to look at things rightly instead of being blown about with every wind of doctrine. Think things through. Even in 1 John, it tells us, test the spirits. We are not to be mindless followers. We're to be Bereans who know the scripture, who push against things. Who want to know the truth, not be sold some pablum that's comforting for now. So he longs for us to be well thought, deeply thought, tested, that we would be watchful. Because very clearly, the devil's not, and I've talked about this before, Marilyn Manson's just bad for the devil's business, right? He's just too overt and out there. You can see him coming a mile off. He's kind of tall and weird anyway. And, and so just that, that whole, like, that's not Satan's deal. Remember, he's an angel of light. The cloven hoof thing is something that crept into culture somewhere along the way, which actually I think the devil probably introduced it so you wouldn't see him coming, right? He's probably the one telling you, look out for the cloven hoofed one with a pitchfork and a cape. <laughs> you know, we're like, oh, Marvel Universe or DC. I don't know which one it is. And so, so he is an angel of light and he's not interested in followers because you're gonna mess up his brand because you're not consistent enough even in your sin to suit him. 
You're not, and I'm going to use this term out of order, you're not holy enough in your brokenness to actually suit Satan's purposes. So what he wants is for you to be erased because you bear the image of the glory of God. He wants you to be utterly devoured and destroyed. So don't think he's interested in you helping with his brand. You're too unstable for that. And so we're called to resist him because we know he's at work, firm in our faith, sober-minded, watchful, prayerful, all of that fits into this just as Peter should have done, just as Christ commanded. And our firmness in the faith is something that is, is supposed to hold us, but you cannot have a firmness of faith without cultivating those things. You must be an active disciple. You must be investing something in this. When I was a radical anti-theist, my favorite thing was for people to try to evangelize me. Loved it. Because I knew, I knew more of the Bible than they did. They just had a few verses. They were going to take pot shots. I was going to eat them alive. And I did. On many occasions. I'm saddened and sorrowed by that. Don't get me wrong. And it really saddens and sorrows me that there would be people who claim to be Christians who haven't even read the book who don't even know what it says, who are writing checks they could never cash. So that is my challenge to us as a church, is let's be a church who is biblical, who knows even the hard places, is able to say where there is mystery, I don't yet know. Qualification being yet. Because it may be that God reveals in time. There's a number of things that five or ten years ago, I, had no, I didn't know what he was talking about. But after much study, God has been faithful in the power of the Spirit to bring it around to an answer that I can live with and that I actually I think is a biblical answer on some things. Is that true of everything? No, there's still a few of them hanging out there. The end of Judges, cutting the girl up and sending her out to start the war. It's a weird story, right? But it's supposed to be because everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's what you get to. That's what you come up with when you're doing your own thing. You think, I'm going to cut this person up and start a war. How's that sound? And so the Lord is gracious to actually take our meager and humble offerings and attempts at discipleship and make something out of them. Remember, he's got so much power that the little bit you can give is logarithmic in his hands. It's not that you need to spend hours and hours and hours. God does understand. That's why he says, work six days, but take one off to be restored and renewed and to worship me and and to get what you need. I get it. You guys aren't going to be seven-day-a-week worshipers. You got to work. Sometimes you got to eat. You got to live. So it's not that he's pressing in upon us saying every hour must be dedicated to this. No, it's our lives should be dedicated to it and everything fit together. Of which our study of the scriptures, our being sober-minded, our being watchful is a subset. And he says, and he says, I also want to make sure that you guys don't think you're special. That you don't go thinking, well, nobody else knows what I'm going through. How many of, how many have you, how many of you have heard your child say about their sin You don't understand what I'm going through. Nobody else has ever done this before. Oh, really? (laughs) May I walk you through the wall, you know, the hall of history, not not the hall of faith, but the hall of sin, right? Plenty have done. I mean, there's really nothing new under the sun. There's some stuff that you kind of cock your head and go, wow, that was pretty creative. But, But there's still more than one data point out there, trust me. And so he's saying to them, I want you to know that you're not alone in this. You're not necessarily unique in this. This is the lot for God's people worldwide. So take heart. There's people who know what you're going through, who are praying for you to pray for them. Take heart. It's not that you are unique or special, so you cannot elevate yourselves. Your suffering is something that is being endured all over. And then he goes on to make clear that it will only be for a little while. That language is so important. And it says, and when you've suffered for a little while, remember what Paul said in Romans 8, that, that this current suffering pales in comparison 
to the eternal weight of glory that is set before us, that when we are revealed as sons and daughters, it will be so phenomenally glorious that these will be forgotten old tales. We won't remember any of this. And amen. We won't remember the bad stuff. We won't remember the hard parts, the suffering. We will only celebrate where God was good and where we were able to join in with him in that work. And that will be a glorious day. And so he says, and it's just for a little while, and when that's done, the God of all grace, who has called you, remember, Peter's circling back around to remind them, who are these folks? Well, they are elect exiles. Remember what it means to be elect? To be elect means that you didn't do anything to earn it. God in great grace bestowed it upon you. So he's reminding them that you are elect, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will personally himself. Think about that. I can't help but think when I read this about Moses, when he, he dies and it is God who buries him. I can't help but think of Adam and Eve in the garden when they have been found out and all seems lost. It is God's loving hand who covers them. He bestows upon them the covering for their shame, the adequate covering. So that so that he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, and we need to say for all eternity. And, and Peter can't help himself. He breaks out in doxological praise yet again. This is the second time in the letter. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So for Peter to say those things, to know those things, that is worthy of pausing and just worshiping for a moment. Listen to what Edmund Clowney says about this. He says, the danger to the Christian is that he will fail to resist, that he will not watch and pray, that he will not put on the whole armor of God and take the sword of the Spirit. The sword, the Word of God, was the weapon that Jesus used in his ordeal in the desert. It is ours to use in his name. Peter calls us to do what he had failed to do in the Garden of Gethsemane, to watch and pray. So it is incumbent upon us that we be active in the Christian life. So this is the question that I would ask of you is, do you ever take time to humble yourself by judging how you're living in reference to the will of God? Now let me pause for one second and say there's a dark side to that question. So let me give you a couple of banks of the river here. Here's not, I'm not talking about you self-flagellating yourself and beating yourself up and becoming neurotic. That's not any sort of, of, uh, of taking time to look at ourselves and deal with the plank in our own eye should always be the same exact purpose of the gospel, which is restoration. So what this, what I mean by this is the humble and honest reflection firmly founded on the knowledge that you were already forgiven for however it is that you've failed. As far as the East is from the West, it has already been established. Your sins, past, present, and future have already been dealt with. So all you're doing is putting it in the light so that it can be transformed. This is not for you to beat yourself up. This is not for you to say, see what a colossal, because we're so arrogant in our failure, aren't we? See what a colossal failure I am? I'm never gonna be any good such a loser. I'm like the best loser ever, but the worst at the same time. Right? <laughs> it's just, I, don't know, I don't know why I'm like a 16-year-old kid in middle America. Uh, but, but I mean, that's, that's, that's us, right? We're like, we're like a, a, this, this, this teenager with hormones coursing through our veins. It just says stuff that makes no sense. And we think it's incredibly dramatic and it's powerful. I read my journals from when I was, man, I, th I hope I've burned them. Because if anybody ever finds them, it's going to be a dark, dark day in my life. Like I was reading, remember the night I was reading them? I was like, who is this person? They needed to be shut up somewhere and, and just not allowed pen and paper. Uh, and it was so, it just, I read some to Susan. It was just, disgust, it was horrible. Just like all the angst and all the whining. It was just terrible. Uh, I, I, I really thought, Poison had it right when they said, every rose has its thorns. So powerful. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that song. It's amazing. Uh, and so, and so, 
So we need to have a space where we do humble ourselves and we, and we, and we look at ourselves. And Paul did this, by the way. In fact, he said, look, y'all can't even judge me. And he wasn't, it wasn't Tupac saying it. It wasn't saying it in the Tupac way, but he was basically saying, you can't judge me because I have taken the time to examine myself. And you will not be stricter than I've been. You will not be as thorough as I've been. That sounds arrogant, but it really isn't. It's great humility on Paul's part that he would take the same sword that he used against the church, the sword of the word of God, and he used it to do surgery upon his own soul and the power of the Holy Spirit through union with Christ. Would that we would have the kind of courage to create space where we pause and reflect on who and what we really are. And to be honest, the Lord is so gracious. Um, I, I do this not out of just, like I said, self-hatred, but there's, there's times, and it can be painful too, by the way. But what I know is, is that, that God loves me. The indicative holds me firm. And that nothing I say or admit or struggle in or fail to do is going to keep me from him. And that's not cheap grace. That was hard-bought, hard-won grace in the crucifixion and resurrection, ascension and coming return of Christ. And so, having said that, though, are you able to actually cast your anxiety upon the Lord? And if, 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 when you heard the question, if you thought this word, but take every thought captive, deal with whatever you think it is that's unique about you that allows you to circumvent a scripture that is important to all. And let the Spirit do its work in prying those things from your hands so that you can watch, pray, and resist the devil so that you be not devoured. If you would turn back to the text, as Peter closes out, uh, he's going he's to sum up in, in one sentence kind of the heart of the letter. Listen to God's word. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the names, but Sylvanus was someone who was very close to Peter and probably is the one who helped deliver the letter. Some think that maybe he helped write the letter as well. That doesn't change the content. You can tell from the heart of it that this is Peter. This is all of those assurances of pardon that we've been reading from the life of Peter. This is Peter who failed again and again and again and yet stands firm in his faith and can understand what grace means. And so when he says stand in this grace, it would do us good to go back and read uh, not the whole letter, uh, but a good uh, a part of 1 Peter 1. I'll begin in verse 3. So I just want you to hear it again. This is the grace in which we are called to sin. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is the grace in which we stand, that that, that which God started, he will finish. That which God has given birth to in the world, he will guard until he retrieves it and calls it home. That which has begun in you is eternity in the resurrection of Christ. In union with Christ, you will stand at the last day. And you will meet your father, not your judge. And so Peter says, stand firm in these things. It is the true grace of God. As elect exiles, do not let yourselves be moved off of these things. Don't lose these truths. And he concludes by saying, peace to all of you. Think about the weight of those words. That is not just something being said. We, we had a conversation with some folks last night about where does the term bless you come from? Does anybody know? Alyssa, you know? What is it? I think, like, back in the old days, they had that one where it's, 
That's right. That's right. You got to be careful out there. Roar lion, you know, he's just looking for somebody to sneeze. Like, he, you know, he, he really hangs out near goldenrod because that causes people to sneeze a lot. Uh, yes, they thought that your heart would stop, right, when you sneeze, and that a demon could just like, jump right in there and take you over. And so by saying, bless you, kept you from doing that. Now, we say it now. I don't, who, who in here ever thinks of that? They're like, oh, I'm, I'm casting out a demon straight up. Total exorcist right here. Sneeze, I got you. Right? There's also, do you know where hi and hello come from? You can't answer this. I know, you, I know some of you already know. When they would see each other along the way, they'd say, heaven is high, and they would, the other would say, but hell is low. And it got shortened to hi and hello. So, so that the, the greeting was always reminding us of where we are. Right? So I, I doubt many of you are thinking that when you say, oh, hi, Hello. <laughs> Just did something religious. <laughs> but this, when he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. This carries great weight because he knows that they're going to suffer. He knows they've been scattered about what we now know to be Turkey. He knows the sword that is going to come against them. He knows the devil that is looking to devour them. And yet he speaks a benedictory blessing over them in hope. Peace. To all of you who are in Christ, knowing that the deposit that has been given will be translated into eternity at the last time. So he can speak this over those he loves, those he cares for, as a fellow elder and shepherd, knowing that Christ will make it so. So as we close out, listen to what Paul Gardner says about this passage. He said, this has been an epistle of comfort and encouragement for all Christians, and especially for the suffering church. But it has also presented many challenges to us all. Are we truly God's holy people? Are we ready to suffer for Christ if called to do so? Does the world see that we have a different worldview arising from our belief that there is only one Lord and God who is over all? So in this, Paul Gardner is saying to us, do we remember what Peter has said, that God calls us to be holy for he is holy? Remember, that doesn't mean perfect. That means set apart. That means forgiving and forgiven. That means loving. That doesn't mean better than. We're not holier than thou. We're holy in humility. Do we recognize that we can't think in the same way and live in the same way of the world? That we are supposed to be more hot. We, we should throw the best parties. And everybody get home safe. We should be the most hospitable. We should be the quickest to serve and offer when one is in need. That would speak truly of the gospel in our deeds and not just our words. So how do you define grace? Is grace what you use to get away with what you want to do? Or is grace the firm foundation on which you stand to try to help you do what you know you ought to do but often struggle to do? And how does Peter define grace in this letter? It's not cheap for Peter. He's tasted, remember his admission as an elder, Remember, his, as he calls them to watch and pray, in that is inherent the failure to have done so. He knows the cost. It's often, so often, that's what, like, the struggle with our kids is when we try to tell them, hey, don't do this, what's the first thing they say back to you if you've done, if you've done that? Well, you did it. You turned out okay. <laughs> first of all, that remains to be seen. <laughs> Story's not over yet. Uh, and secondly, I uniquely know above all the costs. You need to listen to me. And so this is what Peter is saying. Look, I have failed. In everything I'm calling for you to do, I have failed. I denied my Savior three times. Even when he told me it was coming, I couldn't stop it. And yet, I stand before you redeemed and restored, 
called to love you and to feed the sheep. And that's what Peter is seeking to do for us. And what an amazing thing, if you think about it, is still happening. Peter is long in the grave. And yet this letter has ministered, if to no one else in this room, to your pastor. I will not be the same for the study of this letter. And may that be true of us all. So what do we learn from this last part? Two things, uh, at least, that we should humble ourselves under the will of God as evidenced by our casting our anxieties upon him as we watch, pray, and resist the devil. And remember, what you're humbling yourselves to is a good, good father who will secure everything to the end. And then, last of all, we are to stand firm in his grace. I love the way Rich Mullins says it. Uh, when he says, hey, if, if I stand, let me stand. But if I fall, let me fall on that same grace that draws me back to you. Karen Job says this, Peter's readers have been given new birth into a living hope, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By definition, that living hope puts them at odds to some extent with the society in which they must live. And yet in the midst of whatever they might suffer, because of their faith in Christ, they also have great joy and peace that come only from being right with God, the creator and judge of all. May we be cognizant of how the resurrection changes us and doesn't put us at odds against the world in the sense that we are at war with the world because that war has been won. What we've been left to do is to scatter all that glory in the midst of a very dark place, a very broken place who thinks the war is still on. May we be a city on a hill. May we not put our light under a bushel. May we remember the main reason that we have been redeemed. Share this with others. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and we can humble ourselves under your mighty hand because we know you're good and you're faithful and you're true. And you long for us, your children, to know peace and joy, but to also have our suffering have meaning because our suffering is guaranteed in this broken world. And God, we, we give you thanks that you have given us every good gift to watch and pray. You've given us every means to be sober-minded and watchful. You've given us everything we need to truly resist. Our failure is not your fault. Our redemption is. Thank you that you have drawn us to you as your sons and daughters. May we reflect your glory. Imperfectly we'll do it at times, but may it still shine through. When we fall, help us rise. God, help us to remember what we stand firm in. Help us to remember the depths of your grace it is so confusing to us sometimes that you would love such broken people. It's hard for us not to take the moral high ground sometimes and forget who we were, who we are, and who we should be. Help us, Lord, to live as elect exiles in honor of you, in honor of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.